Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and do I have a great show for you this week. And you may be saying to yourself, well, you say that every week, Ricky Cobb, but I only say it because it's true. I'm out there getting the best podcast guests for you guys. It's all killer, no filler on the Super 70 Sports Podcast, and that's certainly true today because my guest is a member of probably my favorite collegiate basketball team of all time, the 1983 North Carolina State Wolfpack, the Cardiac Pack. This man was a key performer for that team, and he's gone on to become one of the most respected voices in sports broadcasting over the past 20-plus years. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Terry Gannon. Terry, how are you? Ricky, i got to start. I'm doing well to answer your question, but i got to start by giving an Andre Dawson type, we're not worthy. <laughs> doing it right now. You can't see me, but because you make me laugh out loud at least twice a day. And sometimes when I'm on airplanes and I look like an idiot doing it, but uh, <laughs> I have turned everybody that I know, every everybody I work with, everybody who does golf and other sports onto you and uh, Super 70s, and it's fantastic. It's great, man. Well, I can't thank you enough. That That is high praise uh, coming from a man of your stature. So I, I greatly appreciate that, and sorry about those awkward airplane moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have awkward moments for other reasons, too, so what the hell. <laughs> Well, you know, I have to tell you, I, I uh, in anticipation of, of talking to you today, I went back and I watched the ESPN 30 for 30, uh, which about the 83 Wolfpack called Survive in Advance. And I had seen it originally. When did it air, Terry? Uh, uh, just a few years ago, right? It's not that old. Yeah, a few years ago. I can't remember what year, but uh, yeah, maybe three years ago. So, yeah. so I had seen it when it was new, I think. And so I wanted to go back and, and watch it again before I talked to you. And, and and I'm telling you right now, I told you before we started recording, I, I was in tears on about three different occasions watching this thing. Mm-hmm. So powerful. Not just the story of this improbable run that you guys made all the way to a, to a title, but of course the legacy of your coach Jim Valvano. And and you mentioned in the thirty for thirty that sometimes it's difficult for you to articulate and talk about what Coach V right. meant to you. But all these years later, before we get into talking about the about the run, what did it mean to you as you look back on your life? the bond and the relationship that you had with Jim Valvano? Well, it really started when he came to recruit me, and uh, my dad was a longtime coach, basketball coach, but he coached baseball and football as well in high school. And so he, he came to the front door. First of all, he was mad because we gave him bad directions, so he started <laughs> right in. You know, <laughs> What kind of directions are you giving me? I barely made it. You're lucky I even got here. And uh, you know, he comes in, and within five minutes, he's got the, the tie on done. He's got the shoes off. He's got the feet up on the coffee table. And you felt like you knew him all your life. Um, and he was the most remarkable guy I've ever been around, even to this day. He was the smartest guy I've ever been around. He was the funniest guy I've ever been around. He was the most enthusiastic guy about life. Everything you've ever heard about Jim Valvano or seen in the SB speech like the SB speech was poignant because he was dying at that point. And, and, but that type of 
motivation, that type of energy, that type of charisma. It's what he brought to the table every, every single minute. And, and I wish I would have had a tape recorder and a pregame speeches and a halftime speeches because as players, we heard that SB's type speech every game. And, and he would quote, he was an English major, and he would quote authors and poets, and he would quote historians just, just thrown in there ad hoc uh, in his speeches. And half the time, I, I remember one speech, we, we were actually, we were playing Virginia and Ralph Sampson, and um, he got going and he couldn't stop, and it got to the point where the assistant coaches are looking at their watch, and they, and they had to tell him, hey, hey, coach, the game starts in like four minutes. we, we got to get up there and warm up, okay? we got to stop this thing. Um, but he was like being, when you were around him, it was like being in the front row of a heavyweight championship fight. You know, you, you just couldn't take your eyes off of the action. And he walked into a room and he took over a room, and it was his. I've never seen him be in a room where it wasn't his. Slept about four hours a night just because he had such energy, um, and he was on all the time. It was authentic. And he had to bring your end game, too, because just in terms of uh, thinking, I mean, he demanded it from you. If you were in his presence... He demanded that you had your A game, you know, whether whether it was on the bench or in the locker room or just driving the car with him somewhere and having lunch. That's the type of uh, figure, the type of character he was. He was something special. It sounds like it was a pretty easy decision for you then once you encountered his magnetism that uh, that you were going to head, head down to North Carolina. Yeah, I got recruited in the Midwest, you know, from Joliet, Illinois, and got recruited by the Big Ten schools and uh, the Marquettes. Uh, of the world and uh, Loyola, Chicago, Notre Dame. I grew up a huge Notre Dame fan. I was at my dad had season tickets since Joe Kuharich was there, um, <laughs> and we went to every single game since I was five years old till I went to NC State. I was at every Notre Dame game. We went to bowl games, and so that was my dream to play at Notre Dame. And and Digger actually recruited me, and at the very end took another kid uh, from downstate, actually from. Uh, uh, East St. Louis, Illinois, uh, Dan Duff, and um, it, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened because uh, I remind him every time I see him that I have a ring and he doesn't at this point. <laughs> so um, I went down to NC State, but uh, it, it, yeah, it, in part, large part because of Jim Valvano, but also at the time in the 80s, college basketball in the ACC, I mean, it was the, the Holy Land. It, it, you're talking about guys, yeah, like worthy and Samson and Jordan and it was just one school to the next and one superstar to the next so to have a chance to go there and play that was pretty special. Well the people who are old enough to remember I probably don't have to tell them how good the ACC was in the 1980s. In that era in the 1980s was just a great time for college basketball period. The Big East was was tough uh, in that era as well but Looking at the ACC, just in 83, the year that you guys won it, UNC, Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, Brad Darty, Matt Darty, who was a who was a good player as well. I, I'm looking at uh, Ralph Sampson, of course, at Virginia. And Maryland had Ben Coleman and Adrian Branch, and I think Lenny Bias was a freshman at that time. And, yep. And, and looking at Mark Price and John yeah. Kelly down at, at Georgia Tech during that era, it's just absolutely one, you never had an off night. No, there's no question about it. And and to look back and 
and think about having played against those guys. Um, you know, everybody stayed. I, I mean, Michael stayed three years. Uh, how that would never happen today. It was the golden age of college basketball in many ways because the stars stayed there, and and they, they weren't leaving after one year, and they, and and they got even better. I mean, imagine Michael Jordan three years into his college career or james worthy he goes all the way and yeah. as a freshman i played against him so all those guys you just mentioned for carolina you add worthy to the mix on that team um it was you, you, there were nights when you suited up you went out there especially my freshman year and you're in warm-ups and you look over on the other side and you go what the hell am i doing here <laughs> <laughs> how did i get here and i'm not sure i belong you know and then the ball goes up and you know, your adrenaline takes over and you just play. But I did have to learn to do that, just play and remind myself, hey, it's just basketball. It's the same thing I did for four years at Joliet Catholic, but now I'm doing it against Michael and Worthy and Perkins and those guys, but just do what you do. But it was it was intimidating on some level. Well, that Georgia Tech team, uh, you know, in 83, because I was looking at the standings in, in the league that year uh, in the conference, they went 4-10 and 10 with Mark Price and John Sally. I, uh-huh. you, you, you put you put together a team in today's game with Mark Price and John Sally at the level that they were playing at that year, and that's that's a top ten team nationally, probably. I mean, it's, it's oh yeah, it's oh, oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yep, you're absolutely right. And then you mentioned the Big East. I mean, my gosh. And then we would go play against some of those teams, and eventually in the tournament have to play them. I mean, we got beat by Chris Mullen and those guys, St. John's, to go to the Final Four my senior year. Uh, he had Ewing, and then you know we end up for the in the championship game playing against Houston. We had two Hall of Famers and Elijah Wan and Clyde Drexler. Um, you're you're just not going to find that anymore in college hoops. No, it was the golden era. I, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to match it again. The ship has sailed. I mean, to think that Ralph Sampson spent four years at Virginia is yep. Great. They never went to the Final Four, and they go to the Final Four the year after he leaves. How about that? That's crazy. You know? The other aspect to it, and not to, not to sit here like two old guys reminiscing about the past, but it's true in college hoops. All of that talent which stayed, and then on top of it, if you stay three or four years, you've learned how to play. And, and that's what's missing now, too. So the greatest talent in college hoops now plays for one year, and they don't play for Mike Krzyzewski for four years, learning how to play the game. Right. Um, so you never get a team that is at the highest level. You get the mid-majors who have guys who stay for four years and learn how to play, and that's how they can knock off the big boys now and then. But you never get the highest level conferences who have the best talent who stay and learn how to play. And that's what you have then. It was an entirely different world. I don't think that you know, if you're under a certain age, you can't really relate to what it was like. Is there any possibility, I mean, do you think that they can do something with the NBA to make it a situation where guys can't come into the league until they're 20? Because now we've got LeVar Ball, and he just pulled his kid out of high school, for crying out loud. I mean, are we going to be looking Are we going to be looking back wistfully in 20 years on the days when kids at least did one and done? You know, I mean, how far down the wormhole can we go yeah, here? I, I, I don't know because legally I'm not sure how far they can take it. And the, I think the NBA would like to have kids stay in school longer, too. I think I mean, so. They don't want to be handed these kids who are not ready to play. Um, and 
you know, figure, well, we better draft him now high because of the talent. The, uh, you know, you hear about the upside all the time. Well, that just means he doesn't know how to play the game yet. Um, and so they would like him to stay longer, too. But what do you do? Then there's got to be a viable option for them to come right out of high school, which you can. And, and certainly you can go to Europe and you can play in different places. But it's a um, it's not an easy solution. People tend to think, well, just come together, college hoops and the NBA, and make a deal that they have to stay three Yes, it's possible, but with the money that's out there now, legally you're denying a person to write uh, their right to make a living at that level, and um, you know there there would be lawsuits. Yeah, no, I I think you're you're right about that. Uh, before we get into th- this amazing run that you guys had in '83, and you, I can't say enough about it. I was what 11 years old when when you guys were making this run and had no connection making me feel (laughs) yeah we're two old guys talking but let's not forget who the older guy is okay (laughs) (laughs) i look back on that and that is maybe my favorite college basketball team ever and i didn't even have a dog in the in the fight so to speak obviously i watched a lot of acc basketball in those days but for you guys to do what you did, seventeen and ten at the end of the regular season, you you went eight and six, I believe, in the ACC, which is actually very respectable given the quality yeah. of the competition. You were a good team, but going into that ACC tournament, the the impression was we got to win this tournament to get into the dance. Yeah, no question, we did. We had to win it, and it, two things happened. Number one. Derek Wittenberg, who was one of our star players, and if you watch the 30 for 30, he's kind of the guy it's centered around. Uh, he tells the story. And um, he got hurt. He broke his foot. He had 27 points in the first half against Virginia and Ralph Sampson uh, early in the season. Came down on Othell Wilson's foot and broke his foot, and he was out, they thought, for good. Well, he's able to come back for, I think, the last game of the, the last regular game of the season against Wake Forest. And it was a big bump for us. And and in the meantime, it's that classic case where other guys get playing time while one of the star players is out. The young guys like me get to play. And all of a sudden, now you go seven, eight deep instead of five or six deep. And going into the ACC tournament, we had him, but we still had to win the tournament, which meant we'd have to beat Wake Forest, North Carolina with Perkins and Jordan, and Virginia with Ralph Sampson on three consecutive days. Now, who would have thought we could do that but we had a coach and this is the second part of it who absolutely believed it believed somehow it was our destiny to win the national championship and because he was who he was he made us believe it and so every game which was a buzzer beater i mean every game one of them was overtime in the acc uh tournament it would come down to the line where we'd win and you'd get in the locker room, and somebody'd say, "Ah, it's just destiny. We're going to win it all." And you'd laugh. Well, the next game it happens again, and somebody'd say it, and you'll you'll laugh a little bit less. By the third game, when we beat Ralph Sampson for the ACC championship, nobody's laughing. And now you start the NCAA tournament, where you actually believe—it's crazy—you actually believe, "What the heck? Somebody's got to win it all. Why not us?" And that was kind of the magic of V of Valvano. Now you have one of the best lines in that thirty for thirty because you're you're talking about coming out of the ACC tournament and let's let's go through this real quickly game by game. You you guys are down to Wake Forest late, 
and come back and beat them by a point. They had the ball with the lead with time running out. And, and, and Sidney Lowe stole the basketball to get it back. Yes, and, and we had to end up making two free throws, Lorenzo Charles, to win it uh, with single digits on the clock, yes. You beat North Carolina the next day, ranked number five in the country with Michael Jordan and Sam Perkins and Brad Darty in overtime. Uh, not- in overtime, Perkins, Perkins had a 25-footer at the end of regulation, which I'm, I can still see. It went halfway down, halfway down, and came out. And if that goes in, none of this ever happened. We're done. I saw Sam Perkins make a lot of those over the course of his career. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> too, you know? I know. I'm on it. <laughs> All right. You get past Wake Forest. You knock off North Carolina. And now you just face the consensus number one player in the country, number two ranked in the country, Virginia. So... All right, no, no big deal. We'll just we'll just beat them and make it three uh, three wins in three days, right? Exactly, and and it and it, that one right down to the wire too. Um, I mean, literally down to the last possession, they had a shot to win it. So yeah, there were there were no easy games. Believe me, they were all miracle games that we beat, and and those two were against teams that we had no business beating if, on paper, at least. So the line that you have that I was referencing uh, in the 30 for 30 is, and you were just speaking the truth, the potential for a letdown is really there because you go to Corvallis, Oregon to play Pepperdine. And right. if And I don't care, anybody who has played athletics at, at any level, really, above kindergarten, understands that you can get yourself into a place mentally where... You're not at your sharpest, and you guys, there, there's got to be some letdown in a sense to play Pepperdine. Who, let's face it, you probably were expecting that you would handle Pepperdine, and you got to be careful with that. And Pepperdine darn near beat you guys. Take me back to that that first game that winds up going double overtime just to advance to the second round of the tournament. Well, first of all, they send us to Corvallis, Oregon. Right, as far away from Raleigh, North Carolina as you could possibly go. And we just got done playing the ACC tournament, which at the time was the hardest ticket to get in sports, literally. It was because all so many of the tickets are tied up into boosters. We have to get thousands of dollars to the booster club just to have the rights to buy the tickets. So it was the, the atmosphere at the ACC tournament, especially then, was off the charts. And now you get on a plane, you go to Corvallis, Oregon, which you've never heard of, and you're playing Pepperdine, which you almost never heard of. I mean, our mindset at the time, what, what, is that a toothpaste company? What is that? Pepperdine, what the hell is that? Yeah, who are those and, guys? And it's an arrogant thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, that, that arrogance almost came back to bite us, but because they were very good. Dane Suttle was such a good player, and, and Jim Herrick was the head coach of that team, and you know what he went on to do. But at the time, you're like, all right, let's get this one over with and, and move on to playing UNLV. And we find ourselves so down in the game that I look up and there's 54 seconds left and we're down six and Dane Suttles at the free throw line and he's an 80% free throw shooter. And I remember it going through my mind, well, this was a nice run. Uh, I got to go back to history class tomorrow. Oh, well. Yeah, what are you going to do? And, and not and, that you're giving up, but you're being real, you're right. But, I mean, isn't it a fine line? Such a fine... I mean, you think about that. A couple of things break the wrong way there, and 
we're not we're not talking about the 83 team on this podcast and not only do you not wind up going on and making this run of of history you're you're bumped out in the first round i mean it's such an excruciatingly fine line sometimes in sports i mean a couple of things there were there were 35 things that if it bounces the wrong way we're done along the way and i'm being literal that i mean that's how many and it and it really is a, a kind of a microcosm of life i mean you know along the way a certain thing turns here or there and your whole life is different if if sam perkins shot goes in if dane subtle misses or makes it at the free throw line and then again we foul them again the next <laughs> possession right and, and and he misses again not to throw Dane under the bus, sorry, Dane, if you're listening, but um, who would think that could happen? And if any one of those things along the way goes differently, um, you know, I my entire life is different. Forget just winning a national championship, but we talked about it, but everything from that point forward would be entirely different. And so, yes, it, it it's scary because, you know, you, you try to teach your kids to be prepared for everything. But you can't be. You just hope you react the right way when it happens. And when you're knocked down, you come back and all that other kind of stuff. But it teaches you that don't be so arrogant about life and what you've achieved and what you've done. Because it really, um, along the way, so many different things had to happen the right way for you to get it done. I think it was Dick Stockton that had the call that night. And when Sidney Lowe fouled out of that game... Dick, who's a who's a great guy, I know Dick a little bit. He's a wonderful guy. Dick, I don't want to throw you under the bus if you're listening, but, but uh, you know he basically pronounced Sydney's career over when oh, yeah, when he no, fouled I've out. About it with Dick since, yeah, I know Dick very well, and I've laughed about it with him because, and this is how far the NCAA tournament has come. That game was on tape delay; it wasn't even live. So we play the game. We go back to our hotel. We got pizzas, and we're watching the game. <laughs> at that point in the game when he says it's too bad that Sidney Lowe has fouled out of his last college basketball game you know we're throwing stuff at the TV and going ah what are you talking about what do you know we come back and win it um, you know you, um, you, have, you don't have that chance anymore it's not on tape delay but sure we were left for dead we were done so you come back you win this thing in double overtime and your prize for that is you get to face twenty-eight and two, number six nationally ranked UNLV. So, Got it. so yeah, so you you clawed all the way back just so that you can face this challenge, and Sydney Green again, Sydney Green, Sydney Green. Oh, that team. Yep. absolutely, yep. And Sydney Green, as it's discussed in in the documentary, and I and I, you know, I'm referencing this documentary so many times. If you have not seen Survive in Advance. Go out, find it online. It's available out there. Just Google it, and you'll find this. And I promise you, it is absolutely worth your time. But Thurl Bailey, uh, you know, who's a soft-spoken guy, kind of got fired up a little bit by some comments that I think Sidney Green had had made uh, on the eve of the game. Sidney Green talked in the newspaper about how he's never really heard of Thurl Bailey. Who's Thurl Bailey? And he didn't expect much from him. And you know, here's Thurl Bailey about to embark on a 14-year NBA career with with the Jazz. He's a pretty good player. And uh, Thurl didn't say a thing. Uh, other players did. We talked about it in the locker room prior to the game. But Thurl isn't that kind of guy. And uh, he, he he went out there 
had a hell of a game. But still, we were down double digits in the second half in that game and had to once again make a miracle comeback. And, and the final bucket is a putback by Thurl Bailey over who? Sidney Green. <laughs> so you got it. So a little bit of justice in the way we won that game too. But that was about at the time where we really started to believe that there was no way we could lose. And I mean that. And I, it, it, as a coach, as great as Jim Valvano was, you can't choreograph that. You can add to it. The, the belief he instilled in us really was the only way we won a national championship. But at that point, as a team, if you got us to the three-minute mark, and it was a five-point game, up, down, didn't matter. We knew we were going to win somehow. We were going to steal the game. And, you know, to have that feeling as a team, there aren't many teams, that's the only team I've ever been on that had that. And uh, it, it, we just weren't going to lose. You beat Utah. This is the one that people don't really talk about very much because that was, the, I guess, you know, that you guys did a pretty good job with Georgia in the Final Four as well. But you guys handle Utah by 19. So this is the one that I guess finally everybody deserves a breather at some point. And uh, you guys were able to handle Utah without uh, expending any more of your uh, central nervous system uh, to get it done. <laughs> you're, right. you're exactly right. We we were knocking down jumpers from everywhere. We came out hot in that game. But the big challenge of that game was it was played in Utah. It was in Provo. So going in, you you, you weren't thinking this was going to be an easy game because you're basically playing not on their home court, but certainly it's a bit of a home game for them. And then after that win, what is our prize? We get to face, as Derek Whitbrick said, the monster again. <laughs> we got Virginia and Ralph Sampson again. And I'm he's like, pissed. Oh, my God. Right? I mean... And, and he's pissed, yes. <laughs> and, you know, you, you're just thinking, you know, we'll take on anybody else. We just beat these guys. What are the odds we can beat them for the second time in a couple of weeks now? Um, and, you know, the, another game that came right down to the final possession. Knock them off, 63-62, and you're going to Albuquerque. So here we are at the Final Four. You've got you guys against Georgia, and then you've got what I think a lot of people incorrectly considered to be the de facto championship game, maybe, in Louisville and the Houston Cougars. This is where Houston comes into the story, and anybody who was around at the time knows Fislama Jamma, these guys were badasses. And you're talking about Clyde Drexler and uh, Akeem Olajuwon, two, two Hall of Famers, and then the other guys that they had filling out the, the rest of that lineup were some Benny guys Anders, that Larry were Anders, Larry Michael Young. It didn't end with the two Hall of Famers. You're absolutely right. I mean, that, they were just, they were an NBA team. They were. I mean, that's a, and, and again, guys stuck around, so they were not young. Um, and we actually, they played, we beat Georgia in the first game in the afternoon, and then we went and showered, and we took our seats, and we stayed for about five minutes. And we kind of looked at each other and said, you know what? This isn't going to do us any good watching this <laughs> NBA all-star game here. Let's go back to the hotel. Let's get out of here. And, and we went back to the hotel, and, and some of us watched the second half. And but it was dunk after dunk. It was it was a modern 
wide open dunk fest and it existed in the 80s in the early 80s i remember watching it you're watching the future and that louisville team could run and do some things too and i guess they made the mistake of thinking hey we're going to play our game and and houston was just bigger and badder and more high flying yeah. and uh and took them out but if it, but it was uh but you're absolutely right i mean it was like it was like a uh prize fight where the guys are just slugging it out and somebody goes down on their sword and it, it was louisville that fell on their sword that afternoon they tried to run with them and and as great as they were and they were they, they were terrific you just couldn't run with Houston. There was no way. I mean, that, and, but they, they had their share of dunks as well. Louisville did. And it was for a fan. That's I don't know in the 80s for a fan there would be a more entertaining game than that one, than that matchup. I mean, it was just something else. This was the era where people would just take the air out of it. I mean, we're going. I mean, yeah. the the, the three point line was a was an experiment, right? In the ACC at that exactly. at that time. Exactly. Three-point line and the shot clock were experiments that year in the ACC. Um, so they weren't yet put in uh, at that point in the 80s overall. So we went from the ACC where you had it all year, then playing a, facing teams that played an entirely different style of basketball in the NCAA tournament where you could hold the ball. You, you could slow it down. Uh, but those two certainly did not. Guys like you and, and Wittenberg, I, I mean, that that's a weapon. Especially in the ACC because that, that thing was... It was really no, it was compared to today. It was ridiculous. You know what? You know what I shot from three point range that year. What did you 59%, shoot? Fifty nine percent. Fifty nine. So I'm not. I'm not telling you that because I think I'm good. It was short. It was. I mean, almost every one of my shots was a three pointer. I, I might have taken a couple twos during the year. That was about it. And uh, yeah, we we killed that three pointer. But then we got in the NCAA tournament. And people said, "Wow." I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bet on them. They don't have the three. They, every shot is going to be two, not a three. Sure. Um, and and I got that reasoning. But we, uh, Valvano said, we're going to keep playing the way we play. We're not going to change it at all. Even though there's no three point line, we just kept playing that way. So take me back, Terry. You guys are facing Houston now. Now, there's two ways that you can look at this. One, and Coach K is is in interviewed in the documentary as well, and. You know, he says that there was no way that he thought that you guys could beat Houston, and certainly he wasn't alone in that. I don't think that there were a heck of a lot of people. I don't know if anybody has the column out there that they wrote that they actually have clips somewhere and they can go back and point to where they predicted that you guys were going to beat Houston. But uh, if there is somebody that wrote that column, they were they were probably I never by, saw it by their lonesome. I yeah, I've, I haven't yeah. heard of it either, and I'm pretty sure that if somebody did that, they would be. Uh, they would be trumpeting it to the world, so it probably doesn't exist. Put it this way. My my dad laid the points that night. <laughs> <laughs> what were they favored by, was, actually? I think it I think it started at eight or nine and went to like eleven. You okay. Know? But think about that in the national championship game. Yeah. That's that's a big number. Now here's the thing though, okay? We can look at it one way and say, All right, even though you guys were Without Wittenberg for you know uh, part of the season, seventeen ten regular season, you do win the ACC tournament by the skin of your teeth. One game after the other, you get by Pepperdine, you beat UNLV. You know, there's part of me that looks at it and says, you know, leading up to that, you had beaten the number five team in the country in North Carolina in the ACC tournament. You beat the number two team 
uh, the following day. You beat the number six team in UNLV. You beat Virginia again, who I think was ranked number four at that point. And then Georgia was number 18, but we'll just leave them out of it. You've knocked off number five, number two, number six, number four. In retrospect, should maybe, were we sleeping a little bit on the Wolfpack going into that championship game? Because you yeah, had, you'd slayed bit. some yeah, giants. I so. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, we, were, we were not um, a team that had no business being there. We, we earned our way there. Now, we earned it by the skin of our teeth every game, but we earned our way there. And, but the, the thing about it is, it was because Louisville and Houston watching that game, you realized how good they were. And, and as much as you might have paid attention to Houston through the year, watching that game, you just had your eyes up. You went, wow. And, and now, so off of that game, every sports writer, every sports fan, you know, is looking going, Monday night could be a massacre. That's how good these guys are. They, I mean, and they literally had two of the best players that ever have played the game in Drexler and Elijah Wan. So it, it, I think it had more to do with that than us not getting the respect that we deserved at that point. 52-52. You got, well, you guys are up eight at halftime. And then Houston yeah, comes first up. First of all, let me, just, let me, okay. just, take, you, let me just okay. take you to the locker room real quick. Okay. Because we kind of told it in, in the 30 for 30, but this was the moment of the whole deal. All right. Jim Valvano for two days talked to the media after we won on Saturday about how we had to hold the ball, slow the game down against Houston. And in practice, that's how we practiced. Work on controlling tempo. We got to keep the game in the 40s at the most, you know. And so that Monday is the longest day ever. You go over for a shoot around, then you just you're just waiting for the game. You're so nervous, you're so anxious, and it snowed in Albuquerque that day, so you couldn't even sit outside. And you finally get there. Yeah, you get dressed. Uh, just like always, the scouting report is up on the board. You sit down as a team and you wait for Jim Valvano to come through the door and give the pregame talk. And so, in dramatic fashion, like V always did, you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you're looking at each other. Finally, the, the door bursts open, and he comes in, and he paces back and forth, and he grabs an eraser, and he erases the entire scouting report, every bit of X and O's that you could possibly imagine, and he throws the eraser away, and he turns to us, and says, if you think we're going to hold the ball in front of 50 million people for the national championship, you are out of your mind. We're going to go out there and kick their ass. Everybody jumped up. It was like a movie. I mean, everybody oh, jumped up, started shouting, jumping around, and, and huddled, and we burst through the door, and we went down that tunnel, and that was the entire pregame speech. And it's exactly what we needed to hear from. We didn't need X and O's. We didn't know how we were going to stop Elijah. Well, we probably weren't. Uh, you know, how you do that? We needed to know he believed in us. And he believed we were going to win the game. And, and that was the whole deal before the game. And, um, you know, we, we were heading down the tunnel, and Houston had a little huddle. And we heard them say, the team that dunks the most wins, which we thought was kind of childish, but whatever. And so... The game started with a dunk and ended with a dunk. And at the end of the night, we had two dunks and they had one. So they were absolutely right. <laughs> Going back to that night, because I mean, I, re- I remember watching it and, you know, holding my breath down the stretch. You guys were up eight at halftime and then they came out. Right. 
they came out taking care of business in the second half and built up a lead of their own. They came out blazing in the second half. They came out running. We couldn't stop them. Uh, Elijah one was hitting baseline jumpers. Um, yeah, they, they, they took a significant lead. It, and um, it looked really like the game was about to be over. And it got down to about that 10, 9, 8-minute mark right in there. And lo and behold, Guy Lewis decided, this is the time. We've got this. Let's slow this game down. And let's hold the ball and run out the clock. And if he didn't do that, we probably wouldn't have won that game. Fateful decision. Running. Yeah, exactly. And it probably was the right decision, classically, as a coach. But in, in that night, we were at a point where they could have put us away. And by holding the ball, they allowed us then to start fouling. And that's what we did. And we basically fouled our way to being back in that game. Tell the story of the uh, heroic charge that you took on Clyde the Glide. You mean the tackle? <laughs> well, that's, I, I'm still talking to you, though, right? This isn't my interview with Drexler. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's years later. It was a hell, it was a buckus-like tackle. I was <laughs> wrapped up tightly, and I took him down. Well, it was the first half. He should have never, Clyde Drexler is on the floor. In the first half, he's got three fouls. He should have never been on the floor. Um, you know, some coaches will sit you with two, certainly with three. You're out. Well, Guy Lewis left them in, and we're on offense, and, and there is a long rebound that comes out, which Clyde gets right in front of me, and I backpedal, and I realize at some point I am the lone ranger. There ain't nobody back there but me. And a week earlier, when they played Memphis, Memphis State back then, he actually, in a similar situation, took off from the dotted, and jumped over Andre Turner, dunked, and ended up on the other side of him. He literally jumped over him. And it, it ran through my mind in that split second. There is no way I'm going to be Andre Turner on a <laughs> national championship game and be on a poster forever having Clyde Drexler jump over me. So I, I got just inside the free throw line, and I said, I'm holding my ground. I'm standing right here. And as I stopped, he stopped. To take off now how many guys could actually do that but him and michael jordan maybe a few that's it he stopped to take off and i just wrapped him up like i was tackling him in the secondary and i fell back and let him fall right on top of me and i looked up as the whistle blew and the referee was making the charge call and i was thankful from that moment on but he was on the you know he couldn't believe it he was calling every name in the book as we lay on the floor <laughs> in, a, in a heap and and Years later, I ran into him in the locker room at an NBA All-Star game. And I, I, was, I was going over to him, and I could tell he, was, he recognized me, but he was trying to place exactly where he knew me. And I walked up, and I said, hey, I'm Gannon. He goes, that's where I know you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, the last time I saw you, we were laying on the floor in the pit in Albuquerque, and you were calling me all kinds of names. And he, he goes, I remember now. And guess what? You're still all those names I called you that night. That was, that was a block. That wasn't a charge. I said, well, it was called a charge, my man, and forever a charge it will be. He, need, he needs to find the ref. He had to go out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you made a play. He should have never been out there. His beef was with, yeah, well, that's he should have never been out there. There'd be three fouls in the first half. That's, yeah. you yeah, know. Yeah. 
I like that's like Austin Powers playing blackjack. You know, I, I like to live dangerously. Uh, all right, so uh, fifty-two, fifty-two, and it comes down to the fact that you guys are going to hold for the for the last shot, and very nearly, you know, they they come out and they trap. So take me to that moment where you guys are caught off guard a little bit as they they go to a zone. Yeah, well, you set up in the huddle what you want to do. And, you know, what we always did and we plan to do there is run our offense, hold the ball, spread the floor, and then with about nine or eight seconds left, Sidney Lowe, our point guard, would get it in the middle. Derek Wittenberg would be as a shooter. He's on one side. I'm a shooter. I'm on the other side. Sidney would penetrate. If they help, he would kick it to one of us. Up goes the shot. We win the game. Well, it was a great coaching move by Guy Lewis. I mean, I mentioned a bad one earlier, but this was brilliant. They hadn't played zone all night. They came out in a zone trap. So so as soon as we inbound the ball, they trapped. We're like, oh, my God, what are we doing here? And we got so messed up. I mean, we had guys in positions that they never should have been. They almost stole the ball twice. Once where it would have been a runaway slam dunk at the buzzer to win the game. It would have been their shining moment that they would always look back on. And somehow we're able to keep it away from him, but it, it ends up with Thurl Bailey having it in the deep corner, nowhere to go. He throws a one-handed baseball pass all the way out to uh, Derek Wittenberg out top, about 30 feet from the basket. Now, at this moment, as Witt catches the ball, I'm open on the wing, and I am calling for the ball. I'm waving, you know, I'm waving my arms for the ball. Well... It was a brief moment of insanity because Derek Wittenberg was a scorer and a shooter. He was never a passer. He was never going to pass the ball. And and he lets it fly from 30. And it's well short. Akeem Olajuwon drifts up the lane. I'm still not sure what Akeem was doing at that moment. Unless he was afraid that it was going to hit the rim and he'd have a long rebound. And there's Lorenzo Charles who goes up, catches it, dunks it, buzzer goes off place goes wild and you realize in that moment that you have just beaten one of the great teams ever in college basketball for the national championship and it's uh, you know it's it's i can't tell you what that moment feels like because it's a million different emotions all rolled into one but you do kind of see all those times where in your backyard and it's five below 10 o'clock at night all of that kind of runs through your head you know that that it all led up to this. That's what fascinates me when I when I see Roger Federer fall to the ground after he wins a a Grand Slam, or after you see somebody sink a putt under the most stressful circumstances to to win a major, or you see the Cubs last year, for instance, me being a Chicago yep. guy. Yep. And in winning, and not only winning, but just sort of exercising this demon for for uh, so many fans. You know, you were a young kid at that time, and now here we are, 34 years later. I'm still fascinated by it. We're talking about it, breaking it down. What does it mean to you in terms of the way that it changes your life, even on into your your 50s? Are there moments now and again where you think about it and you just kind of pump your fist to yourself and just think, yeah, we did that? How does it age? I still shake my head. I don't pump my fist. I cannot believe that I had a chance to be a part of that. I mean, you know, you grow up in Joliet, Illinois, son of a coach, and, and, and with all that that entails, 
You know, you're living that dream like with your dad. And, and with my mom in this case, she was a huge sports person. And all of those dreams you had, I always dreamt of playing major college basketball. All right, playing at a program that was a high level and all my friends and family watching me on the weekends on TV. I didn't necessarily dream of winning a national championship because that's, that's a pipe dream. You know, so many, so many things. What you can control is the work you put in to get to a certain level and, and become a player that is of a certain level. So when I got to NC State, in many ways, that was my dream realized. Now I wanted to be a player. Now I wanted to factor in and be a starter, or at least be a contributor and, and be a part of something. To be a part of that, it's just utter disbelief. And in that moment when the, when the shot goes in, we did pull it. Remember, remember the goalie for the, the Olympic hockey team who was looking up for his dad in the, in oh, the stands? Oh, Jim Craig, right. Uh, Craig, yeah. I had that moment because my dad was there, and I'm looking up in the stands, and I'm having to argue with the security guy. No, that's my dad. Let him down. No, sir, he can't go there. Yes, he is coming here. And I grab him and bring him out. And you, and you jump around on the court. And, and in that moment with somebody who's lived the dream, they know everything you've been through. It's utter disbelief that you have been a part of that. And I remember on the bus, though, going back to the hotel that night, saying to our guys, saying to my teammates, we are the 69 Mets. We are the Olympi Olympic hockey team. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. What, what the hell are you talking about? We, you know, let's, let's go back to the hotel and party. I'm like, no, guys, you've got to understand. We're going to be remembered. We're not just going to be another team that won the national championship in a given year. People are going to remember this. And they're like, yeah, 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 okay. But I, I had that sense. That was the future broadcaster in you right there with the, Maybe, with the, with the perspective. Yeah. No, I mean, really, though, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a certain amount of self-awareness there for, to realize that kind of in the moment uh, correctly, how it was going to be remembered. Well, I mean, a couple of years ago in the Super Bowl, one of the commercials, it was more than a couple, it was about five, six years ago, one of the commercials was a, they had peak moments, like two peak moments, from each decade. Pick you from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up until, I can't remember who, what the commercial was, but we, our moment, that moment with Jim Valvano running around in the court was, I, I think the other one, well, I don't remember what the other one, it, you know, they had things like land, man landing on the moon and stuff. They have our <laughs> moment. And, and I mean, you, you immediately call all your teammates. You're like, did you see that? Did you believe that we are like holy cow um yeah and it's so still to this day as much as there's pride and all of that to be able to go through that especially with the group i did and with jim valvano who's so unique um it's still it's hard to believe terry i want to ask you about the state of basketball today and, you know, maybe we're, we're going from the sublime to the sort of the sad state of affairs that we're, that we're seeing in big time college athletics, not just in college basketball, but I'm a University of Louisville alum and I, I'm so down right now, uh, about what's going on at, at my old school and, 
not only the possibility or likelihood now, I suppose, uh, probably just a matter of time until the 2013 uh, NCAA banner comes down, which uh, obviously is a historic precedent, I guess, in, in in some respects. I can't remember. Maybe, did anybody lose it like way back, like 60 years ago? Did one get invalidated like in 1950, maybe? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, I kind of remember, yeah, but I can't. But yeah, but but in my you know certainly in my lifetime as a sports fan, you know I haven't seen. I mean I know that it happened to USC and in, in football, but such a such a downer for that to happen. And then there's the other part of me that you know is not a homer and, and not biased towards my school. I, I look at what's going on and the allegations that have been made and 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 what has happened. That's really permanently tarnishing Rick Pitino's legacy, to put it mildly. And I think, well, it's richly deserved if, the, if these allegations are, are, are in fact, uh, you know, proven to be true. What do you make of the, of, of the state of the game? And if, and if this is really true that uh, UofL is, is dropping the six figures to, to bring a kid in, should I, should I be shocked or should I be shocked that uh, we haven't seen more of these types of scandals? The latter. Listen, I, I feel bad for you as a fan of Louisville, but just know, and, and here's my problem with the whole thing, this is a system that has developed over the last at least couple of decades. People will say, well, they've been paying players for years, back in the 60s and 70s. They were, yeah, booster handshakes maybe, but this is a system that developed, which starts very young, and it starts with the AAU programs, and it starts with the shoe companies, and it extends all the way up to college a- athletic departments. And in basketball, it is you know it's not a it's not a football roster where you have so many guys. I mean, it's a small roster, and those names out there, everybody knows who the names are that everybody's going after. It extends, I think, to school administrations. Certainly knew this was going on. The NCAA certainly knew that this became the system. So I believe what we've seen so far with the feds getting involved, with the FBI getting involved, let's see how far they decide to go. But if they were to take it to the next level and decide that they are going to go all the way, it is system-wide, it is university-wide, it is not even something at some level that was even viewed to be under the table or swept under the rug. Um, anybody who's worked in college basketball over the last two decades, anybody who has coached in college basketball, been an assistant coach, or even been, a, been an administrator at a school, knew at to some degree that this was how it was done. You had to have a pipeline to the AAU circuit. You had to have then, uh, some for, for some, they were directed to go to schools whose coaching staff was under contract to school program, the athletic department is under uh, contract with a certain shoe company. And they were funneled to those shoe, the, those schools. And then from that point on, they're hooked up with agents who are also connected that way. And so it is something that is much more wide-sweeping than just a Rick Pitino or a Louisville or the schools that have been a part of it and mentioned in this initial push by the FBI. Now, I'm not saying everybody's out there cheating. I'm not saying every kid that is a high-level recruit has been gotten this way. Don't get me wrong. But it is part of 
how the system has developed. So anyone who expresses shock at the fact that this has taken place or that this was going on is being somewhat disingenuous because if they were a part of college basketball, they knew that this was taking place. Where do you stand on the issue of players being paid, you know, over over the table, where athletes are able to uh, get some type of compensation for this unbelievable amount of revenue that they're helping to generate for these institutions? I think it's only right that they do get paid. And I think it, with them not getting paid, certainly allows there to be an argument, well, you're making billions of dollars and we're making nothing off it. Can you blame us? Now, the flip side is that, yes, they are getting a college uh, education if they so choose. But, you know, the one and dones aren't choosing and you can't blame them for that either. Why would you throw away all that money? You gotta, you could get hurt. You could tear up an knee in your sophomore year. Um, and, and the other aspect to it is, too, there's an argument that says, well, it'd be a stipend. So how much would that stipend be? Is that going to keep a kid from turning down $200,000 that he's offered? No, you can't give him $200,000. You know, um, and the other complication is, what do you do with non-revenue sports? What do you, I mean, an athlete who says, look, I'm, I'm an athlete at this school too. Why should that player get paid and not me? So then if you decide to pay all your sports players, then where does the money, how do you divvy that up? Do you go non-revenue versus revenue sports? There are a lot of issues out there, and I don't have the answers. I don't have all the answers. But I do believe that in some way these athletes should be compensated beyond just a chance to get a college education. Maybe the answer is the Olympic idea that now where you know you allow them to go out and make money any way that they can, uh, and it's a free market. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't have the answers, but I do think it's got to develop that way, and it will. I think. I think it will go in that direction. All right, got to talk about your broadcasting career, and I and I don't mean to bury it. Uh, at the last 10 or 15 minutes of a podcast, but we've had such a great time talking about uh, college basketball back in the days when it was played the way the good Lord intended uh, for for it to be. (laughs) But you have been at it now in broadcasting for, again, not to make you feel old, but I think uh, a little bit north of a quarter of a century now, and you've covered such a wide array of, of sports. I'm sitting looking at your resume and we've got everything from college basketball to college football to the NBA to the WNBA, PGA, LPGA, AAA baseball, the Tour de France, Little League World Series, World Cup, Indy 500, Triple Crown horse racing. Did I say figure skating yet? Uh, all of these sports that, that you've covered, and, and in addition to various uh, Olympic events as well, you know, looking back on this long and distinguished career that you've carved out for yourself, what are your favorite sports to, to, to cover? And I guess I've got a two-part question. What are your favorite sports to cover? And when you get an assignment to go and cover a sport that's maybe not a sport that historically you followed a lot or you know, have a lot of uh, base knowledge to, to call on. How do you go about approaching covering one of those events? Oh, yeah, when I got that call to go cover figure skating, uh, sure, I knew everything about it, A to Z, from <laughs> the history, uh, from Sonia Henney all the way down to uh, Michelle Kwan. No, hey, I checked in the mail for 
for you mentioning all those sports, by the way. <laughs> it, I, I have been fortunate. I, you know, I, I signed with ABC years ago, not long out of college, at a time where they were, you know, they had just been the Rune Arledge wide world of sports, pretty much inventing sports television. Absolutely. In the 60s and 70s. And so that tradition still went and And wide world of sports, that show still existed. And I was a part of that and got to host it a couple times and was, you know, the, the play-by-play guy going out there to do ski flying in Slovenia and <laughs> mountain biking in Vail. And, uh, you know, and I'm on the air with Jim McKay's voice. Oh, it's so, the finest tradition. I, Keith Jackson covered events in, what, over 30 countries, I think, uh, yeah. he, he told me once when he was working for Wide World. So, I mean, you are carrying on in the finest tradition of names, as you said, like Jim McKay and Keith Jackson. What could be better? I actually got to know the guy who was the agony of defeat. <laughs> all right, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's, yeah. All right, yeah. the needle just moved across the record here for me. Okay, hang on. <laughs> You know the agony of defeat guy? Hang on, I feel like I am like no, two degrees not. from true greatness here. Forget about forget about your accomplishments as, as good as they are, Terry. I want to hear about the agony of defeat guy. And, and there's a good story with it, too. His name is Vinko Bogatai. He was the ski jumper who, you know, kind of freaked out halfway down and then was the agony of defeat for years and years. And... We went and did ski flying. Now, this is double the, the height and length of ski jumping, like the long. It's ridiculous. Like the Olympic champ that year got there and said, uh, no, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm going home. And Vinko Bogatai lives in this village in Slovenia. It's right on the Italian border in the Alps. And so we set up an interview with Vinko Bogatai. So we're waiting in the parking lot to do this interview of our hotel. Got a nice little area set up. And... He's late. He's 15 minutes late, 20 minutes late, 30 minutes late. Finally, you hear the screeching of tires come around the corner, and this car bolts into the parking lot and stops. And, and right behind is another car with four old ladies in it who jump out and just start basically verbally assaulting the guy in the first car. <laughs> and the guy in the first car is Vinko, who is now trying to talk to them. The cops come in. They're talking. And so finally our interpreter has to go over and talk Vinko out of being arrested because what happened was he rear-ended these the old ladies in the car at the, at the site and then took off, and they chased him all the way to the hotel, right? <laughs> and so he comes over and had one of the greatest lines ever. Be- before we could even introduce ourselves, he, he comes over and says, I'm very sorry. Every time I'm with ABC, I crash. <laughs> <laughs> Which was one of the all-time great lines. That's pretty good. So it went from there, and, and we did our interview, and went out to dinner, and got to know him, and actually uh, saw him a few other times through the years. And uh, no one really in that village knows he's the agony of defeat guy. You know, and they didn't have wide world sports on. So. That's that's amazing. You might as well have just told me that like that you knew Wyatt Earp or something. I mean, I, <laughs> I he's he's the he's like not a real person. You know, he's the agony of defeat guy. It's he really exists. Yeah, it's like. Absolutely. It's like telling me that you know Captain Crunch, or you know, I just I can't wrap my mind around it. So tell me, what are your favorites to cover? I mean, you've covered such a such a huge array of sports, from individual sports to team sports to professional sports, amateur athletics. If if I was going to say, all right, you can just 
carve out your dream schedule for 2018 and there's absolutely no limitations on the events that you can cover and you can pick two or three what would be in your wheelhouse two things number one i love the fact that i got a chance to do all these sports all these different things and as you say you know you're assigned to something and you go wait i'm, I'm gonna host the world cup mm, yeah i pretty much didn't grow up playing soccer. Let me jump on this and start watching the Premier League and uh, the Bundesliga and all these different leagues. And it, it, that kind of goes back to Valvano, too. I mean, that was his his whole thing was, why not? And he instilled that in us. So it, I wouldn't have even accepted these things. Like, I got a call from Jack O'Hara, who was the executive producer of ABC Sports back then. This is 95, saying, hey, we need you to go to Tokyo and do a figure skating event next week, okay? And you're like, um, really? No, kid. Uh, I, I know who Peggy Fleming is. That's it. No, you'll be fine. You'll do your homework and, and, and do it. But and, and a lot of the different sports that I get into, football is something I grew up with, obviously. But even that, the way it happened, he, same guy called me up on a Monday and said, yeah, I want you to do play-by-play on Georgia Tech in North Carolina Saturday, okay? And I said, um, Jack, I, I'm a basketball color analyst, and um, it's not really basketball season. No, no, football. Yeah, you, you'll, you'll work the football game set. So, uh, like, I got I get off the phone and it's like, I got to figure out how to do college football play-by-play. So I called everybody I knew. I even called my buddies who were doing a local cable access high school <laughs> football show in Cary, North Carolina for 25 bucks, right? And <laughs> I said, you've got to let me sit in and at least call play-by-play on something before I go on the air doing football. I said, okay, so on Wednesday night, I called... Carrie Senior High against Apex Senior High on local cable access. And on Saturday on ABC, I did play-by-play on North Carolina and Georgia Tech. Um, you know, it, it's a leap of faith that you say, okay, I'm either going to say no or I'm going to tackle this and I'm going to go ahead and do it. But right now, where I am, my favorite things to do, really three things, basketball, and I would do half college, half NBA. I've become a huge NBA fan. I did it late when I was with ESPN and ABC, and, and uh, I, I've got a greater appreciation for NBA. I used to be a huge just college hoops fan, and, and now both. And I would do golf, which I do a ton of now, and I would do the Olympics and, and figure skating, which I'm getting ready to do in February with uh, Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski. So it's it's a pretty good schedule that I've got, now having done all the other things you're talking about, and college football, and, and, and I do some college hoops now too but i'd whittle it down to uh to those three and you've grown to love figure skating from what i gather i mean what did you learn about figure skating because i mean listen i'll i'll watch some on the olympics every now and then and you can take what i know about figure skating and it's probably where you were when you initially uh you know got uh got thrown into the deep end what have you learned what have you grown to appreciate in your years covering figure skating well, once I got to, to be around it and, and watch these people practice and what they go through uh, and, and gain some knowledge from the Peggy Flemings and the Dick Buttons and, and the Johnny Weirs and Tara Lipinskis that I'm around and, and what goes into each jump, you, you're, uh, it's amazing what they're able to do and land on a quarter-inch blade, you know? Um, and the speed, you don't on TV, you don't get a sense of the speed. They're, they're, we, we did a thing where we raced a, a hockey player against a figure skater some years ago, mm-hmm. and it wasn't even close. The figure skater blew him away. I mean, just it wasn't even close, the speed, which kind of makes sense because in hockey you're not just 
just going one end to the next. You're having to move laterally as well and do everything else. But um, that and the fact that they're out there by themselves. I mean, you got 13-year-old girls out there by themselves in front of 20,000 people and millions on TV skating at the Olympics. It's got to be terrifying. And all you have to do yeah. is execute perfectly, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that's all that's being asked of you. Everything perfectly, but then, you know, your, your dress has got to be perfect and look perfect and do it. And that all, the artistic side all comes in and all that. And yeah, right. It, it's, it's pretty amazing what they do. So um, that's my appreciation for it, which has grown through the years. Let me ask you about golf real quick, because I'm a golf guy, and thanks for telling Curtis Strange about the Twitter, by the way, because I had a blast talking to Curtis on the podcast not long ago. Yeah, now he texts me twice a day, did you see the latest one from the Super 70s guy? <laughs> you got to check it out. So, no, I'm glad. He, he loves it, too, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a good guy. You know, Curtis tells it the way he sees it, which is uh, always refreshing. <laughs> I, I got to ask you about the state of the tour today. You know, as Curtis and I discussed on the pod, for for those of my listeners who, who have heard that one already, we talked kind of about the fact that we're in the post-Tiger era and we got a lot of great young stars right now. What do you think of the state of the PGA Tour now that it seems pretty clear, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but it seems pretty clear that Tiger, you know, he may never, he may never play the tour again. And if he does, it may be more of a ceremonial appearance here and there what do you think of the health of professional golf in the post tiger woods era well i'm in in agreement with you in terms of tiger i personally don't think that he will come back and really compete if he comes back a little bit maybe but i I, you know back fusion surgery and all the injuries that he's had and now you've got the djs and the bubba's hitting at 370 yards i mean how do you compete with that we're searching for a replacement for Tiger Woods, and there is none. If not the greatest ever, you got to put him second behind Jack and changed the whole dynamic financially. He what it was built on all the money they're making now. Um, and beyond that, there's greatness. So we want greatness. We, we want one player to be great, and then you either root for him or you root against him to be knocked off every week, and we just don't have that right now. And, and that's why it seems like there's a little bit of lag there. But what I'll say is, these guys are really good. Unfortunately, it's not one of them. It's, it's like six, seven, eight of them who are in that category. I mean, they, they are Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, go down the list, Rory McIlroy. I mean, they are spectacular. And, and I don't just mean that right now they're the best in the game. I, I mean, they are really legit players for an era um so rivalries i guess will develop we haven't seen it yet and phil by the way is at the end of his and he's 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 old carnival to watch (laughs) right um and, and so i think the actual game is is healthy and in good hands in my own opinion it's just that it we need we need that one hero that one great that michael jordan for it to seem like it's getting attention every week. And you can't get around the fact that if Tiger plays in an event, the ratings are doubled, you know? He still moves the needle like nobody else. Yeah, like nobody else. And so there's there's no getting around it or denying that. It, that is absolutely true. But it, in my opinion, these guys, if, if that rivalry could develop, you know, a, a Jack Arnold type thing, and, and I, I, I think it's possible. 
Um, but I also think a part of it too is there's so much money out there now. They're making so much money that you get in your private plane, you go home after as soon as the, the tournament's done. We need to continue to get more and more personality out of them. And, and unfortunately in sports, the more we as fans get separated from our professional athletes in terms of money, social strata, where you fit in, the more difficult that is to get. I think it's not just golf, it's, it's every sport. And, and when you've got endorsements to protect and, yeah. you know, yeah. in the modern social media age, people are ready to jump on you if if something comes out of your mouth slightly, you know, with the wrong turn of a phrase, uh, they've got a lot. And, and I'm like you. I, I, I like to see guys who are, uh, you know, I, I love Charles Barkley, okay? I mean, Charles Barkley is one, one of my heroes in life. But... You know, you got to be you got to be willing to take the take the daggers when they get thrown your way because you can't be an opinionated athlete in this day and age without having that blowback. And I don't think guys want to. I don't think guys want the distraction if, if nothing else. There are very few athletes who could be both Charles Barkley, speak your mind, lay it out there, and corporate entities. Mm-hmm. And. And be part of the whole corporate structure where you're you're making as much money as possible. And your agent is telling you, hey, stay away from this. Don't say that. Don't go there because we don't want to make this company matter. This it might, you know. And I get that. That's that's a smart business move. But does it make it enjoyable for the fans or or compelling for the fans? No. You you want to see a Barkley out there just spouting off and then going out on the court or you know on the on the golf course and playing. And I, and I will say this, Jordan Spieth, to me, is as close to that as we get right now because we have mics out there. So it's, it's not just interviewing. It's actually on the golf course catching everything he says, and he's a running commentary. The whole right. time. So it, it, I, like, I love that in watching Spieth. I get something from him that's real every shot. Is he the guy? I, I mean, obviously, I... I nobody's nobody's chasing Jack and I don't think anybody's even chasing Tiger in terms of career majors but is Spieth the guy you think 15 20 years from now when we look back on this era is he the guy that is going to have the uh, most lavish uh, trophy room don't know I that's my honest answer because the putts have to keep going in what he's doing now putting I mean what he does from 15 to 20 feet you know he's, he's not just lagging beautifully he's making them he makes putts that shouldn't the the open this year at Birkdale was ridiculous yeah now is there a time where he goes through and those don't go in he doesn't have the same raw talent as a Dustin Johnson or a Rory McIlroy so it all comes down to his short game yes yes his iron is you know from 100 yards yes he's got to be consistent whatever but it comes down to him making putts and so for a while, does that go? I don't, I don't know. Making putts is kind of like shooting in basketball. It's You can become a great shooter or be a great shooter or a great putter, but there are times when it's a variable. So we'll see. We had this, it's funny you say, we had this discussion in a different way in the booth during commercial the other day. And it was Steve Sands and I and Kurt Byram and Johnny Miller. And uh, Steve kind of asked, do you think, because we had Phil on, do you think there'll be another player whoever wins 40 times or more. 
It's a because great of all question. Of what we're talking about the corporate aspect, and you know, do you play that long? Do you play that much every year for that long to allow yourself to even get a chance to win forty times or more? And Johnny said, "Absolutely, we will see another one." It's all cyclical. We'll absolutely see him around the table. There were there were other thoughts that no, the game has changed to the point where guys might not play that much for that long. Curtis was the first guy to win a million dollars in a season for a hundred and whatever of them this year. Yeah, well, I mean, it's every week. Every week somebody wins a million, right? Right. So you can't deny that, that money has changed it. It hasn't necessarily made it worse. It's just, it's just money has changed it. So it changes records, you know, and whether players will have longevity and, and how much they'll play every year. And So I don't know. Golf is fickle in, in a way that other sports aren't, and you can't necessarily count on somebody who has a great deal of success and project that out with a, with a lot of confidence and say, "Oh yeah, sure, he's he, he's he's going to be doing this for the next ten years." It just doesn't seem to work that way, except for the you know the true true greats. No, you've had players go through great couple of year runs. I mean, look at Johnny Miller's career. I mean, one of the greats. And certainly had a had a long, solid career. But he had that that one run where he was off the charts, spectacular for a couple of years. You can point to a number of different players who who did that. And yeah, it's it is um, it is something that, and it's better to pick the brain of a, a Curtis Strange on why. But it is definitely there. I'm going to leave you with this, Terry. Give me something on flat water canoeing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and you can totally bullshit me right here because I know nothing. So you can say anything, and as long as it's somewhere within the realm of plausibility, I'm going to buy it. So no pressure. No, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just tell you a story that will make you appreciate how I – because I, I had no clue. You know, it, it, you paddle hard and you go. Um, but so we had one race where they had – you know, it was like an Eddie the Eagle type thing where you had an entry from a country that never sends someone to, to the canoeing at the Olympics. And this guy gets in it, and first of all, it takes him like 10 minutes to actually get in the canoe and sit upright. So they're having to wait. There's like delayed, you know, and you're, you're waiting, and they're making announcements. Uh, the race will start in three minutes if this guy tries to sit upright. And, and they blow the horn, everybody goes, and, and he's sitting there. And it takes him like an extra 10 seconds just to get out of the start line. So by the time people finish, he is literally like eight minutes behind and this is a sprint this is you know this this is not a mile and a half this is not the, the belmont okay this, <laughs> this is um, the quarter horses uh, the racing here and and the crowd grew and this, this was outside of london uh at eaton dorney and the crowd was just going crazy and and the race is over and you're trying to figure out why and then you realize you look down to the other end and this guy's trying to get there and he's trying to get and it took him i don't know how many minutes to get to the finish line but they were standing, cheering, jumping up and down when he finally did cross the, the finish line and made it to the end of the race. And so we were all saying, my God, I mean, come on, what, this guy can't be there. So we actually took our producer, he, he agreed to do it, out. And one of the canoe guys who was competing said, I will bet you $100 that you cannot sit in that thing for three seconds. He's like, what, what, all I got to do is sit in it for three seconds? What are you, can he goes, I'll even put you in it and let you hold the side of the dock, and then we'll start the three seconds, and you can let your hand go. And he goes, you're on, 100 bucks. <laughs> this guy tried 20 times, and I got it on my phone. 
He could not stay up for more than a second. Not once. He finally gave up. It is it is a balancing act. I don't know how they do it, but you, you cannot stay up in that thing. And so I have a much better appreciation for the Eddie the Eagle of canoeing than I ever did uh, prior to <laughs> All right. All right. That's good. You gave me you, – uh, what more can I ask, man? I got a good flatwater canoeing story out of you. I feel like <laughs> – uh, that's the icing on the cake here. Well, listen, we've got the Olympics coming up. You're gonna you're gonna be there covering uh, figure skating, and so I'm I'm gonna watch it this year. That's my plan. All right, I got the ratings up at least by one. Then that's right. You have you've so this has been an hour and twenty minutes well spent. You've you've increased the ratings by one for figure skating. Thanks, so man. all right, and keep pumping out that stuff uh, with the super seventies because I love it. It makes my day every day. All right, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Bye bye. My thanks again to Terry Gannon. What a pleasure. So much fun hearing him recap that 1983 NCAA title run and then getting into his career, which has taken him around the globe covering so many sports. The story about the agony of defeat guy, Vinko Bogataj, uh, is a classic in the history of this podcast, no doubt about it. My guest next week is the author of the new book, The Cooperstown Casebook, Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Who should be in? And who should pack their plaques? A really great read. One of the best books about the Hall of Fame, I feel confident in telling you, that's ever been written. Just a terrific read. I knew after I read the book, I had to get him booked on this podcast. And he'll be joining me next week. You know, December 10th, we're going to have the announcement of who, if anyone, will be selected by the Baseball Hall of Fame's new Modern Era Committee. They're considering players from between 1970 and 1987. This year, Dale Murphy, Dave Parker, Alan Trammell, all alumni of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. They've been on the show. Three guys that I'm rooting for, along with some other terrific players, such as Tommy John, Louis Tiant, Steve Garvey, Don Mattingly, Ted, I am so baked out of my mind. My THC content right now is in the stratosphere. Simmons, Jack Morris is on this as well. And Marvin Miller, who was the director of the Major League Baseball Players Association uh, for many years. All under consideration currently for potential Hall of Fame induction. Jay is definitely going to have his opinions about these players. I'm going to have mine. And we'll also take a look at the 2018 Baseball Writers Association of America ballot. And we'll see the new names that are on that ballot, the holdovers. And Jay and I will talk a little bit about who we think belongs in the Hall of Fame and who we think is going to get in the Hall of Fame, not just next year, but in the years to come. Also, it should be noted, I don't have any proof that Ted Simmons has ever done marijuana. My evidence is only every photo of him taken in the mid-1970s. But that's only circumstantial. So remember to join me, Ricky Cobb, next week when my guest is Jay Jaffe. And never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Podcast.